Hi there, Kim Schmidt, Executive Editor of Farm Equipment here. Welcome to the latest episode of Farm Equipment's podcast series, Our Dealer Story. In this episode, I sat down with Sid and Fred Tidenzer, third and fourth generation owners of Valley Implement, a four-store Case IH dealership based in Preston, Idaho. In 1951, Sid's grandfather, Lowell Tittenzer, got into the farm equipment business when the owners of Lewiston Implement traded their dealership for Lowe's Homestead Farm. In the early 80s, when Case and International Harvester merged, Valley Implement faced the possibility of going out of business or changing brands, but ultimately came out on top and became the Case IH dealer in town. Before we head over to Sid and Fred, I wanted to thank our sponsor, HBS Systems, a multi-generational company that for over 30 years has provided leading edge systems and software technology designed specifically for ag and construction equipment dealers. Thanks for making this podcast series possible. Okay, let's get things going. This is the R Dealer story of Valley Implement. My grandpa was Lowell C. Tittenser, and he had a little farm in Utah and it was a, a homesteaded farm. And back in those days, when you couldn't make a living on homesteaded ground, you added dairy cows, and he added a few of those. But what else he did, this is hard to imagine, but in the 1940s, the government still maintained a cavalry, a horse-mounted units, and he bred and raised horses for the U.S. cavalry. Oh, as wow. part of his sideline. But anyway, in 1951, there became a case dealership for sale in just a little Utah rural town. Uh, the population of that town today wouldn't be 2,500 people, and but there were case dealers in little towns like that. Mm-hmm. And the people wanted to sell the dealership and buy a farm up in the Columbia River Basin where they were starting to pump water out of the Columbia to raise potatoes up in Washington. And the people wanted to sell the business. And my grandfather went to them and he just traded his farm for the business. As near as I can tell, it was a handshake and the people moved over and moved into the house on the farm The dealership setup was such that the dealership was uh, a big cinder block building and there was a house on the floor above it. Okay. And my grandfather moved into the house above the dealership and they just traded. And the people that took his little farm over, their only intention was they thought they could sell it easy enough to buy that ground in Washington, which indeed they did. And... My grandfather took over. They just switched houses and switched businesses. <laughs> that is a unique story. Yeah. So anyway, he became the case dealer there. And, and I don't know what, he, I know that was in 1951. And after some years, he took on New Holland down there. Okay. So he was case in New Holland for a while. And there was a case dealer in Preston, Idaho, which is about... 12 miles north of the little town where he started the first case dealership. There was a case dealer here, and in the early 60s, they dropped Case, the dealer in Preston, Idaho. They dropped Case and signed up for International Harvester. Okay. And so my grandpa opened a second store 
in Preston. And I mean, we're talking two stores really close together. And my dad, whose name was Kay, K-A-Y, he ran the one in Lewiston, Utah, and my grandfather ran the store in Preston, Idaho. And as time went on, it became more and more ridiculous to have two stores that close together. <laughs> they, clo they closed the one in Lewiston, Utah, and that was the beginning of our roots in Preston in the, in the 1960s. Okay. And when your grandfather took over the dealership, was the dealership Valley Implement then, or was did it have a different name at that point when it started? It, it, it was Lewiston Implement, and the Lewiston. town's name was Lewiston, Utah, and it was called Lewiston Implement. And, of course, when he came to Preston, he couldn't keep that name, and that's where he named it Valley. Okay. And then what sort of memories as a kid do you have of, of the dealership? I was born in 1951, which is the year they made this swap. And as a little kid, I went to stay with my grandpa and grandma, and they lived above the farm dealership. And as I got old enough to dust the shelves and stuff at the Lewiston Implement, uh, I worked down there. And if a customer came in and wanted to pay his account, my grandma kept the books. She was upstairs. I went out the implement door and up the side stairs to get copies of the invoices and stuff and ran them back down to the customer so he could pay his account. And okay. So I have those memories of my grandma do, doing the bookkeeping and my grandpa working downstairs. And we're talking a really small operation. There was uh, my grandfather, my dad, and maybe three or four employees. And then when did you... Um kind of start officially getting involved in the business? I graduated from Utah State in 1975, and my dad, who had taken over from my grandfather, my, my dad ran into some health problems uh, in the late 70s. So I kind of worked with my dad for uh, when I came back in 1974, and I worked with him till the late 70s okay and he ran into some health issues and he bought a farm and tried farming and he kind of worked at the dealership a little bit but basically i did operations starting in about 1978 uh, 79 I, I was just in my late 20s when he ran into those health issues okay so you kind of came in in an official capacity almost running the place kind of right off the bat. Yeah, he was he, he was he was the owner and he was undoubtedly the boss, but he he just couldn't come to the dealership and he was trying some other things and right. so day-to-day -day operations I basically took over in my late 20s. Okay. And then how had um this is going back a little bit, but how how did the the dealership kind of grow and change over those kind of early years, those first 20 years or so? Of course, the, the the big change was going from the two stores that were so close to each other uh, to one. Uh, we moved to a larger facility when we got to Preston and consolidated the two stores. But there was real; it was really pretty static when in the mid '70s when I was starting to work there. Uh, we had eight or nine employees, and by the time Fred came. 
full time here in like say 1999, we still only had 12 or 13 employees. We okay. we were just the typical small town single store dealership, and we were making a living, and that's that's basically it. We didn't weren't building up much equity, and we weren't making exceptional money. So and until Fred came, we really didn't start any kind of uh, growth. We went through that period that everybody tells you about in the 80s, and that kicked us back down the field a long ways for a while. And mm-hmm. uh, there was not much real growth until Fred came on board. Okay. And then when you guys went down to just the one store in Preston, were you still a case dealership at that point, or had you totally switched over to International Harvester? We were case in New Holland. Okay. And we, we did not become a harvester dealer, a Case IH dealer, until the Case IH until the mer- okay. merger in, 80, in 84. Okay, so that was a, before you guys got involved, where the, that switch was happening. Uh, before Fred was involved, that switch happened. But right. I, I was, I was the, at least the, I wasn't the owner, but I was the operational manager through all of that transition with the, okay. uh, with the merger. Okay. Dad, could you could you walk Kim through a little bit about how that merger took place and how our relationship with Case and International Harvester played out when all of that was coming down? Because I think that's a pretty critical transition and very interesting. Yeah. Uh, everybody in my uh, everybody in my age group can tell you war stories till the sun goes down about the eighties. <laughs> And 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 there and there's lots to be had, and we and we learned a lot through that, and we we lost a lot of competitors uh, during that period. Uh, going into that period, there were six dealers dealerships in my little town, and lots of dealerships surrounding us. And by the time it was done, let's say '85, '86, when Ag started crawling their way back out. I had one other competitor in town, and he was operating under a chapter, uh, I think either a chapter seven or a chapter eleven. Everybody was gone. We were the only, we were the last one standing. Wow. In my career, I've had six different John Deere competitors because John Deere just kept coming and going and retransitioning and going out. Uh, all of the others went went away. Some of them, of course, later came back. But to Fred's point, uh, International Harvester uh, and Case IH, when they merged in 84, they sent those hit teams around that you've probably heard about. And in a town like ours, where there was a Case dealer and an IH dealer, they had to come to town and tell one to close up and the other, they were the new Case IH dealer. And... We had a dealer in town, a K, or an IH dealer, who had just built a brand new building at the behest of International Harvester. They called it their LTD program or something, but they were Harvester when they had a hot hand in the late 70s, really leaned on their dealers to expand and build a new building and do all that sort of thing. And this poor guy just got all of that done when both the ag crisis of the 80s and then the merger of Case IH came along. Oh, wow. And 
anyway, when the team came, and they were a team, they were a guy from the case side and a guy from the harvester side, they would come and sit in my office and try to wring all they could out of me, and then they'd go down to the harvester dealer, see what he would give, and they were just playing us off against each other. Oh, yeah. As to who 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 was going to have this wonderful new opportunity to be that case IH dealer, and anyway, it, it was a it was a long saga, but we became the case IH dealer. With the international harvester dealer just having this brand new building and all of that, were you? I mean, were you nervous that like you weren't going to be the one who came out on top um, because they had this yeah. great new facility? We we had that we knew that they were gonna lean towards him because he threatened to sue them. He said, "You guys made me build this building, and if you take my franchise away, I'll see you in court." So he was playing his cards. I I did something that worked really good for me. There was a John Deere dealer in town who was just really struggling. And so I went to them and got a buy-sell agreement. Okay. And I went to John Deere and did all of their paperwork and became approved as a John Deere dealer. And so when the Case IH guys came to lean on me, they wanted me to buy that guy's new building because that got them off the hook. They wanted me to buy his inventory because that got them off the hook. And they wanted me to give him a job. And, and of course, they said, if you don't do these things, we're going to make him our dealer. And so but after I got that paperwork from John Deere, I was approved as a John Deere dealer and had a separate side letter saying that I could keep New Holland with John Deere. And... By the time I had all that paperwork done, when the Case IH boys came to lean on me to do all these things, I said, I'd like to be your dealer, but I'm not going to do any of that stuff because it'll break us to take on that guy's new building. I'm not going to do any of that stuff. And I slid those letters across the desk, my approval letters from John Deere. I said, so I'll be the John Deere dealer and you can go have that guy in his new building but my first preference is to be the Case IH dealer, so you guys take your pick. And we ended up doing none of the things that they ask, and obviously we didn't become a John Deere dealer. We right. stayed with Case IH in New Holland. Which I imagine, so if you had done what they had been asking you to, then they would have, you know, if it really would have, if it would have put that much pressure on you, they probably would have ended up with, with no dealer then. Yes, because if we'd have assumed all of the all of the debt and stuff that they were trying to get us to assume, we'd have gone under. And that happened to several dealers. I, mm-hmm. Some of my friends who were either IH or case dealers that just submitted to all their demands at that time, uh, they went under because the economy didn't improve that much. They were painting a picture like, Boy, once you have both case and harvester, you're going to have the world on by the tail. And uh, little did they know, nor did I know, that we were in for four or five more years of real hard sledding in the ag business. Right. Because uh, this was like the mid-80s, around 84, you said? 
Yeah, the merger was in 84, if I recall. Okay, so you still had a lot of the 80s to get through. Yeah, and 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 this worked out good for us. We didn't assume any of the debts and stuff that a lot of dealers did to become the harvester dealer. We stayed in our old building, and indeed, the former harvester dealer sued them, uh, and I... He made some kind of a settlement. It was one of those settlements that he could never disclose what he got. But mm -hmm. uh, I think they learned a lot about mergers by using that faulty method of driving into town and saying, we pick you and not you. Yeah. Uh, I noticed all mergers after that, and there were a few, uh, they would sometimes have two dealers of the same color in the town, two Steiger dealers or whatever. Mm -hmm. And they just said, you're both a Steiger dealer and let the best man win. And they let them break each other. Probably stopped them from getting sued at least a few more times. Yeah, it, it did. And, and I've never known what kind of a settlement that IH dealer got or how any of that worked. But yeah. Uh, all I know is we didn't assume any of his liabilities. We stayed in a little old building downtown. Uh, we took on Harvester, and even that, we struggled to stay afloat through that period. Fred, you were probably starting to be around the business, kind of around at that point. What are some of your memories from your early time within the, with the dealership? Well, at, at that time, I was in high school, and I would come in every night after school and work, and would work here in the summers, and I worked in parts, and uh, that's where I spent the bulk of my, you know, younger years working here. Of course, I don't remember any of these particulars playing out, because I just remember seeing the ag economy and working with farmers, but in the counter, just being on the on the you know, in, in the parts counter is right. what I did. At the time of the merger, Fred, you'd have been how old? Well, the time of the merger, I would have been in the fourth yeah, grade. Yeah, he was, he was nine years old in 84. We'll get back to the Valley Implement story in a minute, but first I wanted to say thanks to HBS Systems, the sponsor of this series. To learn more about HBS's equipment dealership management systems, visit www.hbssystems.com. After that, head over to farm-equipment.com for the latest industry news. Now back to the story of Valley Implement and how Fred, the fourth generation in the business, got involved despite Sid's best efforts to convince him to find another way of making a living. Fred, can you talk just a little bit about how you how you got involved in the business when you you know when you came on? Did you did you know all along this is what you were gonna you know you were gonna be part of the family business things like that? Well, as I as I grew up working here, I really enjoyed it, and I had a really good experience. I always liked working with farmers. I always enjoyed working in parts, and I don't know if I had a plan always to come back, but I would tell you that it's something I did enjoy. And so I went to, to Utah State University, and I, uh, I graduated from there in 98, and while I was going to Utah State University, I would come up in the summers and work. Mm -hmm. And I made a bit of a transition then, although I had worked in parts previously, I started helping a little bit on the sales floor and assisting our sales team, which was basically a team of two, and I offered some support to them. And we were still in the single store downtown in Preston. Okay, still and, in that um, same old original building still in the same old cinder block building okay. so we i came back there and so
so at time of graduation, you know, I looked at a couple of other different things, but frankly, living in rural America and living in a small community were maybe one of the things that had the most appeal to me. Okay. And so my dad and I worked out a plan for me to come back full time. And so I I started doing just kind of a number of things at that point. I would support and assist our salesmen and we have never been very associated with titles or anything along those lines at all. Okay. And so as you listen to our transition it was it probably will be vague to you it was vague to us and i don't think our our team ever really knew when the transition took place okay kim i'll just insert here i did my best to talk fred out of getting into the farm equipment business <laughs> I, I it wasn't that i didn't work with him even by when he started back here in 98 99 even then, I still had that taste in my mouth of the years in the 80s, and I thought, this is a damn hard way to make a living. It's dangerous. It's brutal. And I tried to talk him out of it, and, and he'll tell you that. And we had never been able to expand. I told you my dad had some health issues. He was in a situation where he didn't want to take any risk. So we were still in this old building, which... That, built, that old building that didn't have any payments on it was our salvation overall, but we were still in that old building when Fred came back, and we still had maybe 12 employees. So, and we're talking a long period of just running a, a, a small store playbook in a small town. We were making a good living, but I tried to get Fred to go do something else because I said, there are better ways to make a living than this. And he kept saying he liked it and he wanted to come back. And I had to take a deep breath because I knew that if he came back and we stayed there in a single store, that he'd get to be somewhere around 40 and we'd find out we'd flown up a dead-end canyon and he'd have no career. Mm -hmm. So when he, when he expressed interest, he wanted to come back, we agreed he would come back, we knew we had to up, upshift okay. or he'd run into a dead end in his career. And so we started, what, in the early 2000s looking for expansion methods. Okay. And by that time, I was the owner, so I could expand. Before, I couldn't because my dad just didn't have an appetite for it because of his health. Okay. So anyway, uh, Fred... Fred came back right then, and really, he knows the history from there, and that started our upshift from single store, 12 employees, right in the early 2000s. So, Fred, what was it that, despite your dad's attempts to, to get you to go a different direction, that, you know, kept pulling you back? I, I don't, I actually, that's really hard for me to kind of figure out and remember. I remember one winter... Dad said, just leave this place and go find anything, find something else. Just, just There's got to be a better gig out here. Just just take six months off. Surely you can find something better. And probably the main thing is to raise a family and live in a community of 5,000 people meant a lot to me. And I probably could have found something, but I would have been living in a different community. Okay. And... You'll find through the rest of our history that 
Our roots and loyalty to the community of Preston, Idaho was a pretty big deal. And that was probably the main thing was uh, an attachment to this community that I, I really didn't want to to leave and not have an association with. Okay. So. Um, can you then walk through what, you know, some of that, that growth starting in the early 2000s was like and how kind of the business expanded? So we we came back to saying, what can we do to grow? What are our opportunities? And about that time, we had a dealer contact us down in Logan, Utah, which is about 30 miles south of us. And okay. this dealership was called Bullens, and they were a New Holland-only dealership. They also had a large irrigation business, but their heart was really not in the farm machinery business at that time. They were very oriented towards their irrigation line, and the owner contacted us and just said, hey, can you, can you come in and buy our, our New Holland portion of the business? And so we worked that out, and it was a relatively simple transaction. This was in 2001. Okay. And we went down, and we actually just rented half of his building. He ran his irrigation business in one half, and we ran out the other portion of the, the facility. What was interesting about this, though, is that we really did not expand our footprint. We had already had salesmen down working in this area. We had already considered it our trade area. And so the, we picked up a we picked up a store. We didn't feel like we picked up a lot of geography. We kind of took out a competitor. Yeah. So so Kim, at this time we had um, we had Case IH of course, and we had New Holland in our Preston store. But now we had to go down on the southern end of our valley and go in there with New Holland only. So as you can imagine, that makes for kind of an unusual dynamic because we now have only one of our key brands down there. But we figured out how to make that work. And we actually took several key people um, that had worked here at our dealership in Preston, and they helped us go down there. And then we were able to get together with a gentleman that had sold John Deere previously, and he became the store manager. Okay. So he managed that store. And I stayed up in Preston, and we kind of worked those back and forth. Um, at that same time, there was a, a Case IH dealership in that community as well, and he was looking for an exit strategy. And probably to use the phrase we bought him out is a, is a little bit of a stretch. He was probably working on an exit program, and we worked with him to liquidate some of his used equipment and help him okay. with tools. And I, I wouldn't necessarily call it an acquisition, but we worked with a worked out a plan with him. And so at that time, by even 2003, we had the K-Site and New Holland franchises both in both of our facilities. Okay. So, so once he exited the business, you could, you could bring the Case brand to that other store down there? Yes. Okay. Yes, we did. And then we, we've left one one part of the story out here. You'll probably see from your notes we have a store in Grace, Idaho, mm -hmm. and we'll call it half a store. But at the time of the Case IH merger in the 80s, there was a IH dealer in that little town in Grace, Idaho, and I opened a parts-only store in Grace. Okay. And 
So, so during this time, we did have a score and a half, I'll call it. And to Fred's point about him staying here at Preston, you would think that I would have stayed in Preston and that we developed a story in Logan, Utah. You would think I'd have stayed at the home place. Fred would have gone to the new store. And this is part of our overall strategy, but we hired a manager, like Fred said. We got a guy, we took the top salesman off John Deere's team and put him as our store manager. And Fred stayed here and worked with me at the home store. And the manager had pretty big authority down there to run it as he wanted. Okay. And anyway, but Fred, Fred and I have always stayed here in the Preston store together. How come you opened a parts-only store in Grace? What was the reasoning there? Grace is a pretty unusual little community, but it can't support a full-line dealership. Although there's some large ag up there, has a very short growing season. Okay. We've seen several John Deere outposts try and come and go full-line there. And when we went up there, there was the right guy that managed that store for decades that was the parts manager. And we're, we're talking a location that can be operated with two or three people even today. Okay. So, so today, it, does it remain a parts-only store uh, today? We've, or we, we've, we've evolved it slightly in that we have a hardware store that's co-housed with a kind of a ace hardware, so to okay. speak. And that let us get our headcount up to the level of four, but it's still a modest-sized facility that services one of our core areas, but the growing season's limited enough. This is this is really all that it's called for. So okay. it's a big ag, high, high mountain, high elevation mountain valley, and uh, it, it just didn't justify a shop. You just couldn't carry a, a service department through the winter okay. up there. But anyway, I digress. But I wanted to. I thought you'll look at your notes and say, "Gee, there's another store here they didn't talk about." But yeah. But on on to Logan's. We we went to Logan. Fred had you up to the early 2000s where Case IH and New Holland in Logan and in Preston. Okay. And, and so, so at that point, Kim, we now have three stores and they're Case IH New Holland in all of these stores. And this same gentleman that had owned the New Holland dealership in Logan, Utah, came to us and said, I was running the irrigation business. Uh, for a while, standalone, and I want to exit all types of ag businesses. Okay. And he asked us to buy his irrigation business. And although we made a bit of a leap when we went to Logan, Utah, and added New Holland and rented a building, um, I think our biggest leap maybe ever was when we went into the irrigation business in terms of what it just took for resources for the dealership, a level of risk, and then a little bit of just a business we didn't quite know ourselves. We, right. we had to kind of right. learn it as we went. And so this gentleman worked out a, a buy-sell with us, and we continued to rent his property and his facilities and his building, and now we were operating all of the businesses under that roof, and we became a Zomatic irrigation dealer. Okay. And so... For most of the people that listen to this that are maybe accustomed to irrigation, 
on a maybe a smaller scale where they put up pivots. Pivot work is a, a good portion of the business, but just water, water delivery mechanisms in the West is just like so critical. Mm-hmm. So even today, plastic pipe and fittings and pumps and irrigation systems in general is as critical to us as carrying the Zomatic brand of uh, pivot uh, center pivot irrigation. And so we entered kind of a whole new world there, and we we started running that business. We had irrigation salesmen, and that became a critical part of our our parts business as well. Um, and what it ha- what effect it had is we were able to take that irrigation parts dynamic and spread it out into our stores in Preston, Idaho, and Grace, Idaho. And so we could take uh, water delivery projects, and we kind of were able to carry that through other stores. Although the headquarters today still is in Logan, Utah, and was at the time, it did give us a, another kind of part sales option. Okay. And we would just base all of our irrigation sales team out of that location. We did then, and we still do today. Okay. Kim, just one, one comment about the irrigation business. Fred told you that was our biggest leap. It was our hubris that we know the ag business. We know exactly how this works. We're dealing with the same customers in irrigation. We thought we probably knew what we were doing. Once we bit into putting up pivots and doing that whole irrigation business, we found out it was a different breed of cat. <laughs> and it took, it took us a couple of years to figure out how to integrate that. I thought we'd cut an artery the way money was pouring out when we first got into the irrigation business. You can, if you get 10 pivots out there in the spring under construction, uh, you can, you can easy be a million dollars in uh, open work orders out there hanging out. So okay. anyway, we had a little bit of a learning curve. We like to think we figured it out, but it was a, it was a painful period. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't just success right off the back. It, it took some Yeah, time. well, we, we thought, we thought, gee, we're dealing with the same customers. We're ag people. We got this. And we got a, a brutal reawakening. It took us about two years to get the picture. What, one of the things we've grown accustomed to in the farm machinery business is floor plans and terms and notes. And we basically walked out of the closing in that irrigation business and the owner walked down to his office and he was the greatest guy and he brought a an invoice to us from a plastic pipe manufacturer and it was due in about 15 days for about $350,000. He goes, oh, I ordered this pipe, you'll need it in the spring. And I said, well, boy, that's going to take quite a bit of money this spring. And he goes, yeah, all the money in the world won't solve your problems now. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he kind of laughed and we moved on. But it, it, it did kind of jolt our system a little bit. We knew some of that. Uh, it just was maybe a little more apparent after we had grown accustomed to you know, floor plans and, and things like that. And so as you look at our growth over the last, well, since 2003, I don't regret going into the irrigation business at all, but I think it did delay us in growing farm equipment side Okay. because we had to kind of really put a focus down of how can we make this work, what type of cash consumption is this going to take, and what's our level for risk on this. And so I wouldn't have it any other way in an area that has some limited ag potential in terms of just 
industry units sold. I think it's helped us, you know, uh, secure our fort, as I tell our staff a lot. You know, it gives us another leg to stand on in case we have markets. People still have to get their their water to the to the crop. Right. So. Okay. And then when did the fourth location come on? So our fourth location kind of evolved in a in a similar way. We had a um, just over a mountain pass, a little closer to Salt Lake, a, a dear friend and a fellow dealer that was a Case IH dealer there, and he ran a store called Golden Spike Equipment, and he he ran that with a couple of absentee owner brothers, but he himself was the the general manager. And for a variety of reasons, he was wanting to scale back and wasn't sure quite the timetable. But when Case IH would press him and say, what is your 10-year plan? He'd just say, Valley Implement. But we didn't have a deal put together or anything. But it was kind of an unusual situation because I'd go over and visit him. And I actually started looking for property because... His facility wasn't going to get us where we needed to go, and I would find different property out on different exits, and he was my competitor at the time, and yet I'd go pick him up in the pickup, and I'd say, what do you think of this piece of property? And uh, one time I found one, and he really liked it, and like I say, we were still competing, and I went and purchased this piece of property, and I just kind of started to develop it. Okay. And so I purchased the property in about 2013, and I started hauling in gravel and getting power there. And yet he and I still didn't have a deal put together. Of course, I hadn't put up a building or anything, but I could right. just see that's where we needed to go. And he was he was just the best guy. And he and I then sat down and put together a program to you know buy his uh, parts, and we kind of worked through his used maybe in a joint fashion and. It, it worked out fine. So we we opened our uh, first, we opened in the summer of 2016 in that facility. Okay. And uh, he actually came over and worked with us for a time. That's when we opened. And in that particular town, this is called Tremont in Utah. And so that's our fourth location. And we are case IH only in that town. Okay. So how, um, how would you say... Um, like what's the biggest biggest change you guys think over the 69 years that the dealership's been in business? Um, what was the biggest change for you guys? I, I don't know that I would pinpoint uh, a single biggest change, but obviously there's been large, large pivot points. When Case IH merged with, or with Case and IH merged, that was a huge pivot point for us and things changed. Uh, I, I think the next one was when Fred came back. I had kind of a mindset. When Fred came back, I was about 50, and my plan was just to keep my house in order. I had no debt and just run a single dealership to the end of my career. When Fred came back and we realized we had to make a, if his career was to be viable, we had to upshift. Mm-hmm. So we started just a growth program there. We basically took the equity we had in our little Preston facility and parlayed that into into these other deals. But we've been on, since Fred came on, we've 
just been on a gradual uptick. Uh, 12 employees probably the day that he was there full time and going to stay and, you know, to over 100 today. So that's quite a shift in a 20 year period. Yeah. Are you guys in a new facility in Preston now, or are you still in? Um, through the yeah. through the time that we acquired the Logan store, we made a probably one of the most unusual transitions you could imagine here in Preston, Idaho, Kim. <laughs> we we had been in a downtown facility. I mean, in between the stoplights in us in a small community, but we were on four different pieces of property in okay. the town. So. Our used equipment was on one lot, and our new equipment was on another, and our parts were housed on a in a building across the street, and it was, we didn't know any different, but it was almost an unworkable situation, although it was debt-free, so it was pretty survivable. Right. But uh, Dad had uh, gone out in about 1995 and yeah. bought 20 acres on the north of town, and that's where we're at today. And we actually just started building this in kind of a, a segment. So we built an assembly shop, and that alleviated some of the stress on our old downtown cinder block building. Okay. And then in 2004, while we now had our Logan store and we had just kicked off irrigation, we came out here on the north end of town. And I wouldn't recommend this if people are looking for best practices. <laughs> but we... We built a sales-only facility, okay. And so we had the we had the setup building that had been there since about '97, and then separate from the sales facility, I just built a sales office, and I brought all of the salesmen out here with me, and I brought a couple of office staff, and we sold. And so Dad was downtown, and he worked with parts and service. I worked with assembly, setup, and the whole goods department. And we had a we had a what we thought was a great phone system to cover our customers. I don't think our customers knew any different. And these are customers we've done business with for a lot of years. They didn't seem to challenge us on this. And so if you needed sales, you had to go to one building. If you needed parts and service, you went to the next. And we did that for four or five years. And and Kim, and the reason the reason we did that was basically a, a fear of picking up too much debt load. We developed that 20 acres that I had owned uh, for a decade. We started to develop it and ran in two facilities so that we could pay as we went. Okay. We eventually had to secure financing when we, when we moved out here, but we had a lot of it done and paid for before we made the move. So in 2008, so from 2004 to 2008, we ran in separate facilities. But in 2008, in the Preston, Idaho location, that was the first year that everyone was back together, one property, one roof. It had been a long time, you know, that just, but, but it had to happen. We had to get all of that ironed out. So, and that's where we're at still today. And this is we're just not big enough to have, you know, corporate overhead and corporate structure, but back a little bit to my loyalty to Preston, Idaho, when we can, we do our best to try and put a, you know, a support role that might support our other stores and, and base it out of Preston. Okay. And so, you know, our, our accounting and things, a lot of that is really oriented towards this facility still today. 
Okay. And then, um, Sid, are you still involved in the business at all, or are you retired and and out of the business? I I, I don't use the word retired, but okay. let me say I don't do it. I don't do any work. So okay. how's that? Okay. <laughs> That's fair. Um, and then, uh, what would you? What do you guys think? Um, what would what would Lowell and Kay think of the business today if they could could see how my, it's grown? My grandpa, my grandpa Kay is still living today, okay. and he is ninety years old. And I could still call him today and tell him we had sold a combine or sold a tractor, and nothing would make him happier. There's not a single call he'd rather get than to hear we had sold a piece of equipment. And at the same point, even two years ago, if he saw a John Deere tractor in a customer's yard and he didn't think I was aware about it, he would call and bring that to my attention. (laughs) (laughs) This this is the man that had health problems back in the 80s. He's 90 and lives alone and is doing fine. So, But he still gives us drive-by market share, which we're grateful (laughs) for. You know, I think that really kind of sums up uh, where we've been and our we, we just enjoyed our our relationship with ag. We've enjoyed our relationship with the equipment industry, and it's been a fun ride. And, and in spite of my trying to talk Fred out of coming back to the business because of some of the some of the big storms I'd weathered, I didn't want to see him weather. We've had we've had a real good run. It, it'd be a, a huge exaggeration to say it's been smooth, <laughs> but it it has been really good. It's uh, I'm better off because we expanded and Fred's able to live in a small town and living in a small town is a great thing if you can figure out a way to make a living in a small town Mm -hmm. and this has turned out to serve us all well. So I'm glad he didn't take my counsel and go find a good job somewhere. (laughs) It sounds like it's worked out nicely for you and I enjoyed learning a little bit more. Kim, we appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks so much to Fred and Sid for taking the time to sit down and share their story with us. And another thanks to HBS Systems for making this podcast possible. I'd love to get your feedback on the series, so drop me a line at kschmidt at lestermedia.com. And you can subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn Radio, or Spotify. This will ensure you'll be alerted as soon as new episodes are made. Thanks for joining us for this one-on-one conversation with Sid and Fred Tinenzer. Until next time, I'm Kim Schmidt, signing out of the Our Dealer Story Podcast.